This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. Let's continue worshiping by exalting the Word of God. We're going to be reading from Daniel chapter 1, verses 17 to 21, finishing off chapter 1 of Daniel. It starts like this. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. I'm going to I'm going to invite us to start in prayer here in a second, but um, before I do, I kind of want to give a quick caveat. So we are finishing up Daniel chapter 1 last week. Brian did beautifully. If you want, I, I, think, I think I may have taken more notes than the words you actually said. I was like just back there ferociously with my thumbs. Like I've been, my thumbs have been hurting all week because of all the notes I took from what Daniel, or from what Brian taught on Daniel 1, 1 through 16. It's just a, it's this beautiful invitation a 3,000-year-old story that feels like it could have shown up on the front page of our newspapers today. And I love that. I love the way that the Word of God and the heart of our Father is so timeless. And so as we finish up chapter 1, we're going to be diving in a little bit further into some of the same thoughts that Brian invited us to begin pondering, considering. But as I was praying this week, I had this like simple thought. And I, I love thinking this. Like when I, when I stand up to teach or if I'm going to sing or pray or anything that we do in ministry, this is a healthy thought to kind of begin with, is if Jesus was on earth and he was stewarding what you're about to steward, what would he do with it? You actually don't have permission to do anything without considering that, which is kind of wild to think about. But our call is to be holy as he is holy, to be imitators of our Father's dearly loved children to be. He says that the goal of the gospel in Romans 8 is not just to get us from earth to heaven, but that you here on earth will be conformed to the image of the Son of God so that the Father can be most glorified. So when you think about that, I love, it always kind of gets me, um, especially in a setting like this, where like, I got these five verses, right? And we're all going to gather in a room, and there's this, there's this privilege that I have and this stewardship of taking this text that is far more beautiful. I can promise you that at the end of 30, 35 minutes, whatever it is that I end up talking about this text, by the end of it, this text will be more beautiful than I am about to give it credit for. You realize that? Like, and, and every time you've ever heard a sermon, that's true. And every time you've ever heard a song sung about the Father, like, that's one thing that kind of frustrates me. I, I'm, I do some music and um, love to write songs, and I love to like try to take thoughts that the Lord's given me about who He is and put those in melodic form and stanzas so they rhyme and they're easy to get stuck in my head so I can have those truths follow me around through my day. But 
one time it hit me, it was years ago, as I was like, man, I really, I was getting really into the theology of worship. And like, I want to make sure that I sing right words and right thoughts about the Father. And I felt like he just interrupted me in the middle. It was like, hey, you realize there's never been the first song written that deserved to reach my ears? Never one. And yet, because of his grace and because of what he does with, with the broken attempts that we, that we come before him with, to sing how good he is that always falls short, to take a story like what we're going about to tell and to try to give it the credit that it's due and know we always fall short, that because of his grace, because of his sufficiency and our insufficiency, it's a worthy pursuit. And not only does he humble himself to listen, but he humbles himself to enjoy it. And that is insane. If his ears were open to us, to our songs, to the ponderings in the back of your mind as you hear teaching on a Sunday morning, that would be grace enough to blow us away for all eternity. But the fact that he actually delights to see his children come before him just to, to the best of our ability and knowledge with whatever volition he has granted us to come before him with, to do all we can to worship him. It's insane. And as I approach a text this morning, the first thought that has been on my mind was not just how would Jesus teach it, but I had this thought like, okay, if Daniel could show up to a modern church, all right, he's going to sit here and and, uh, supernaturally he doesn't just know ancient Hebrew along with uh, whatever, you know, Chaldean language they were speaking, but he also happens to know English. All right, let's just, there's a lot of assumptions we got to make here with this scenario, but just kind of dream with me for a bit. And I just imagine Daniel sneaking into a church and hearing the average teaching about this book that the Lord inspired him to write, full of all this kind of weird apocalyptic literature that we'll get into later, full of some amazing stories about faithfulness and moments that he submitted to God regardless of the consequences, all that we learn about him. And I just imagine that in the middle of almost every sermon that has ever been preached on a Sunday morning, that Daniel would have at some point wanted to stand up and awkwardly with, compl- with a complete lack of social etiquette, just stand up and interrupt the sermon and say, this is not a story about four Jewish teenagers. This is a story about God. It's a story about God's sovereignty. It's a story about God doing things through young men that they could not do in and of themselves. So as we approach the text, the first invitation I want to give to myself as somebody who's going to do the best that I can to take the thoughts that I believe he's put on my heart over this week as I've been studying and praying for you all and praying for our time together. I'm going to do the best that I can to not just elevate four young men, but to exalt the God that they desired to exalt by the way that they lived. And so with that in mind, I would appreciate it if we do something a little bit different. I want you, I want you to pray um, over over three three people, okay? One is maybe whoever's sitting next to you. If there's somebody you know, if you've got a spouse, that's kind of probably a 
probably good to pick them to pray for. All right. If you if you don't have somebody that you're here with, you know, like, I mean, just pick somebody in the room, and pray for them. All right. That's fine. If you got somebody you're sitting next to, that you know or don't know, maybe it's a good time to meet somebody. But I want you just to stop for a second and I want you to pray for whoever's kind of sitting with you or whoever you came with. And I want you just to ask the Lord to do a supernatural work in them. Because one thing we talk about here at Com City a lot is we say that like every time you hear a sermon, make sure you're paying more attention to the second sermon. What we mean by that is that God is always doing a work through his word. That's what it means when it says in the scripture that his word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that he wants to do a work in your heart this morning. And make sure that regardless of what I'm saying, all right, we're going to talk about how um, this beautiful protection that the Father gave to, the, to these young men by giving them a kingdom lens by which to live Babylonian life in the way that that they were able to even take this ungodly education and to redeem it. And so I'm going to ask that even if I say something that's a little off kilter, that the Lord will just redeem it in your mind. And if there's something really great that I say, that he'll redeem that, and that he'll make it more glorious than it could have been if it just came out of my mouth and my thoughts. And I'm going to ask also that you would pray over that person's heart, whoever it is that's next to you, and just ask the Lord to speak to them and to give them ears that are paying more attention to their father's heart than anything going on around them. So if you would, go ahead and pray for the person next to you, just that God will do a work in them this morning that they did not expect when they got here. Go ahead. Yeah. And Jesus, even as we pray that, I do, I pray that over every person that's being contended for in this room. I, Lord, I thank you that what I know from your word is that you are not a God who just hears prayers, but you're also a praying God, that you're the great intercessor. And in fact, everything that we do in prayer, we do is simply a reflection of what we know to be the reality of what's happening in heaven right now. And so we do. I say amen to everything that you are praying over every heart in this room this morning, Jesus. And now, if you guys would, I'm going to ask you to do something selfish. Will you pray for me? <laughs> just... Pray that God does an incredible work and redeems the next little bit that we get to spend together and that he empowers me to say the things that are closest to his heart um, instead of the things that might be closest to mine. If y'all would pray for me, I'd appreciate it. Yeah. Jeez. And Lord, I'm just going to borrow a prayer from your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And now one last person to pray for. I want you to pray for yourself. All right. I want you to pray and ask the Lord to do a work in your heart this morning, to open up your eyes to see wondrous things out of his law. That's what the psalmist invites us to pray. So would you go ahead and pray that for yourself? Jesus, I love, you know, even Tuesday night when I was talking to a small group of people in a backyard and I was asking you what was on your heart for them. And I had that sense that, like, even though I didn't know any of the faces I was going to sit before and even though I didn't know the circumstances of what was going on in their lives, the one thing that I could always, that I knew I could rest in is that all of us that were sitting there in that backyard were going to have one thing in common, that we are all corporately underestimating what you would be willing and intend to do with an average hour of our lives. 
So Jesus, forgive us for our underestimations of who you are and what you're willing to do and accomplish. And Lord, may you, may you amplify our expectations until we become people that really clearly live in light of a glory that outweighs us. Jesus, in your name, amen. Amen. All right, so the finality of Daniel chapter 1. This is really interesting because you've got, um, you know, we, we talked at the beginning about what happened to these young men. We talked about, like, the fact that they were removed from Israel. This probably happened when they were um, in their t- mid to late teenage years is what most people assume. Now, that would seem really young to us, but you've got to keep in mind the way that Jewish tradition worked was at the age of 15 or 16, these young guys were probably prepping to get married, all right? And the ultimate sign of favor and blessing from the father in Jewish tradition was family. That was it. It was like, how many kids did the Lord bless you with? How big is your family? That was the way that they viewed it. How large is, how large is your home? You know, and that not as much financial as much as just like what had God given to you to steward. And so these young men, at the age when favor and blessing was going to be poured upon them in the way that they interpreted blessing and favor from the Father, they were ripped out of their community and culture, ripped out of their homes. And it seems like it is safest to assume based upon what we know historically that they were more than likely made eunuchs, which means that the ability to have a family was taken away from them. So everything that they knew of the favor of the Father was removed. They no longer lived and dwelt in Jerusalem, which was the place where God's glory dwelt within the temple complex. Like everything that they knew about the favor and blessing of God was taken away from them. And then they're sent to a place called Babylon, which even now, I don't know if y'all are like me, but like I hear the word Babylon and I think, mm, bad guys, you know? It's like, mm, like when I hear the word like orcs, you know, I don't know if you guys are Lord of the Ring fans, but like there's no, you can't imagine anyone ever writing a story in which orc is like a happy word. You know, that's kind of the way I feel about Babylon. It's like, nope, those syllables are just ruined for all of human history, like Babylon. I imagine whatever language you, you speak or tell the story in, like that word is just a bad word. And they go to Babylon. They go to Babylon and they're ripped out of their homes. They're taken away. And, and what we know is that there are, they have lots and lots of reason to be bitter. And I kind of want to explore this. I want to I like lean into what it was. One of, one of my favorite things is to try to, um, to try to like put myself in a text and not meaning like, I'm the Daniel of the story, but meaning like imagine what they're going through. Imagine what this would have been like to be removed from your home, to have your theological understanding of everything that you knew about God's blessing removed as even being an option, relocated to a foreign land that represented the absolute antithesis of everything you knew God to be. And then, then they changed their names. Okay? Now, so Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, how do we know them? What, what's, what's the name that we, you heard when you heard about the three guys in the fiery furnace? What are their names? Somebody call it out. 
Meshach and Abednego. That's right. Now, it, it's always bothered me that we call them by their Babylonian names, and we, Daniel got to keep his, his Jewish name, but the text does it as well. There's something weird about the text that's going to happen. Actually, at the end of verse 21, the language is going to change in the book of Daniel. It's unique. Um, as far as I, I think there's maybe one other book in the Bible that has a brief chapter that does that, but this is the language of the book of Daniel is going to change to Aramaic after this. It goes from Hebrew to Aramaic and back to Hebrew just to kind of distinguish some of what we're looking at. We'll talk, I'm sure, in the next couple of weeks about some of the why behind that. But it's interesting because this introduction was written to, given to us in Hebrew. And after this, we see them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But um, Daniel was also, his name was t- changed to um, Belteshazzar. And these names were not just like, oh, they gave him a new name. You know, like this, this wasn't just, oh, this name will be like, will sound more Babylonian. There was something about each of, some of these names, not, not each of them, but a few of these names were intentionally changed to be offensive. So when you say Daniel, Mishael, El at the end of the word was the name for God. So these young men had names that spoke identity about who they were in relationship to the Father. And the Babylonians took those names and they intentionally perverted them. They took those names and they said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to keep like the same general idea that your name said about Jehovah, but now we're going to change it and let it say that about Baal. Or now we're going to change that that thing that was said about the one that you know as a heavenly father, and we're going to make that an identity about a general, um, a general group of gods. So this was meant to be offensive. And the way that names worked in the day was not just like, oh, we're calling you a, a, a funny name now. It's like, no, this was their identity. They were trying to do everything that they could to strip these young men of their identity. They were picked because they were the most noble. They were picked because they were kingdom men. They were of the kingdom of Israel. Kidnapped, turned into eunuchs, names changed, every effort made to deconstruct their identity. And yet, in the middle of it, they chose holiness. One thing that I think is so weird, to be honest, about the way that you look at these four young men and their, the, way that they, um, the way that they lived in the midst of Babylonian culture is when we look back now, these guys were one of the greatest blessings that Babylon ever had. So Babylon, the bad word, all right, the, this culture that was directly in opposition to God, the greatest gift that historically was given to the culture and the nation of Babylon was four young men that infiltrated that culture and lived out a different culture in the midst of it. Not apart from it, in the midst of it. One thing that kept coming up over and over to me as I was reading their story and processing like what to, how to apply this in our daily lives is that while their exterior reality was turned upside down, their interior life remained intact. Something that we kind of have to reason with and wrestle with. And we talk about this being a story about a sovereign God. In Daniel chapter 1, there are three gifts that are given by God. Three things, three times that the phrase God gave is used. And those three things teach us three very, very different realities about the way that we see the Father. 
The, the last one that we see in the text that I was given is in verse 17. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. The one before that was in chapter in verse 9. It says that God gave Daniel, specifically Daniel, gave him favor. But the first thing that the Lord gives in Daniel chapter 1 is in verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, that meaning into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. So God gives three things. One, he gives captivity. And one thing that I, I notice is it's really, really easy to read this and to want to just pick two and three. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, God, I'll take favor. I'll take learning and skill and literature and wisdom. You know, but like, I don't want to take, give me into the king's hand. The same sovereignty that gave favor is the exact same sovereignty that gave them over. I love the reminder that we had last week that Brian was saying that the, um, the Jewish people were called to set themselves apart by having a Sabbath year. So every seven years, they would let their land rest. All right, this is an agrarian culture, so that means they were like agriculture. They grew their food. And every, after every six years, they were called to not do farm work to let God farm for them in essence. And I'm sure there was a lot of specifics. I'm, I'm not even going to begin to try to tell you anything about farming. All that I know about farming I've learned in the last um, two years is my son has fallen in love with John Deere tractors. But most of that I just know from YouTube videos that are aimed at three- and four-year-olds. Okay, so if you have, if you would like a very, very elementary understanding of tractors, I can say it goes vroom, vroom. All right, that's about it. That's all I know about farm work. But I do know that God called the Jewish people who, who were in, the, like all of them had some involvement in agriculture if you weren't a priest, you know, if you weren't like probably in the city in an urban context, the vast majority. In every seven years, they were called to let their land rest. Now, this was because they wanted there to be a constant reminder, a constant reminder to the Jewish people, God is the one who takes care of you. So if a young man would come into the age of maturity about the age, at 15, then that meant that by the time he was 15, he had at least two times experienced a year when his family did little and God did much. And that was what the Jewish people were called to. But for 490 years, they say, we think we're actually better at caring for ourselves than God is at caring for us. And after 490 years, that meant that there had been 70 missed Sabbath years. And God said, because of that, I'm going to give Jehoiakim into the hand of the king of Babylon. And he will have you in exile for 70 years. So it was all because, all because they decided they could do life better for themselves than God could do for them. And then the Babylonian king picks four young men who proved, who proved that everything that the Israelites had been declaring by their passivity of worship, by their lack of commitment to the Heavenly Father, was untrue. And I love, I love what happens as they, um, you know, and Brian invited us in, they they went to the king, or they went to the chief of the eunuchs, and they said, here's what we need you to do. We want you to let us eat nothing but vegetables while all the other guys that have 
been kidnapped and are being taught the Chaldean way. Chaldean and Babylonian were, were synonyms while they were being taught um, this Chaldean lifestyle. We want to be fed differently. And like Brian invited us, like, hey, this guy said, you don't understand, like, my life would be at stake. If you get before the king and you look thin and the other kids are looking chubby, like, I get in trouble and may even lose my life. That was a, a, the, the actual response that the king would have likely had. And they said, test it for 10 days. Now, one thing that I noticed is, um, and we're going to do the Daniel fast here in a couple of months, and I love, I love doing a Daniel fast, but I want to keep in mind, like, the point of the Daniel fast was not, man, if you eat fruits and vegetables and don't have, don't have anything but brown grains, we're all going to get six-packs for the glory of God. That is not what the Scripture is teaching us. First of all, what would have been most impressive to the king was not six-packs, Muscles meant you worked outside back then. That was not good. Muscles meant poverty, okay? So if you came before him and you were a little bit chubby, that meant wealth. So they would not have been like, oh, look at these guys. They just got ripped. No, it was they actually got plump, okay? They got plump. They got the one thing that nobody in our society is celebrating. That's what God gave them as a gift because of the Daniel fast. The other thing is, the Daniel fast, this was not meant to be like, oh, this is the way that you get, um, this is the way that you look good. This is meant to be a miracle. God performed a miracle by them giving themselves less, God gave them more. The whole point, the whole point over and over again in this story is God takes these young men, God takes a little bit of obedience and he does a whole lot through it. When he goes before, when these young men go before the king, it says, I love this phrase, what it says that the king decided. The king inquired of them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. Ten times better. The way that works mathematically is it's 1,000%. That's what ten times better means. 1,000% better than Babylon's best. And the thing that I think is important for us to recognize is they took the sons out of the kingdom, but they couldn't take the kingdom out of the sons. You see that? And if there is any more poignant message to a lover and follower of Jesus, I can't really think of what it might be to you and I today. They can take the sons out of the kingdom, but they can't take the kingdom out of the sons. When uh, a couple of years ago, um, as we got to Easter, we did a teaching on, on the cups, um, the cups that would have been served at Passover. And I don't know if you know this, but when we take communion later on in our service, this is going to be, um, we, it's, it's a reminder of the last supper that Jesus ate with his disciples, and we, we drink the cup. Now, the cup, we think of like, oh, it was that, that cup of wine that was sitting at the dinner table, but actually that was one of four cups that would have been sitting at the table before Jesus and his disciples. And the third cup is the one that we remember when we take communion. It's the cup of redemption. And there were four cups. And the first cup and the second cup are unique. And they were invi we were invited, um, the, the Jewish people were invited to take those cups during the Passover celebration. And the first one was this cup remembering the way that God freed them from Egypt. He took them out of Egypt, removed them from the geographical location that represented slavery. The second one, the second one, I love this. This is the cup 
that they would drink to remember the moment that God began to take the Egypt out of them. Isn't that cool? The first cup was appreciation for God taking them out of Egypt. The second cup was when they realized they had to go on a second journey. It wasn't just them leaving the geographical location of slavery, but it was them leaving the spiritual identity of slavery. This harkens back to these young men who, even though they were removed, kidnapped, turned into eunuchs, names changed, everything about their identity stripped of them, they took the sons out of the kingdom, but they never, they never even began, began to flirt with taking the kingdom out of the sons. I think we see this invitation from the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3 when he says, whatever you do, work at it heartily as to the Lord, not for men, because you know that you're going to receive an inheritance from the Lord. It's the Lord Christ your servant. I remember um, um, a couple years ago, I was at a, uh, um, it was a small group Bible study um, that a friend, a friend led, and it was a uh, my buddy's living room, and there are like 30 of us, and I think a few of you that are even in this room today were probably in that Bible study. And um, it was the study was to talk about how do Christians interact with um, politics, basically, with kingdom identity politically. And there were about 30 people, and uh, there were two of us that were kind of involved. I don't remember. It wasn't like we led or talked. We kind of answered questions and um, just interacted with that topic. And uh, I actually see that um, the son of, uh, of the man who led with me, uh, one of the sons is in here today. And I won't even make eye contact. I'll just, you'll know who it is here in a little bit. But uh, um, it was, we sat in this living room and began to interact. And um, the man that I was leading with, he had been, he's from, um, from Moldova originally and had actually worked before um, the USSR um, toppled. He had worked for the Soviet government, and he was a believer, and he loved Jesus, and he said that it was beautiful, that, and I'll ne- I will never forget this. I, I do not think as long as I live hearing him talk about this. He said, he said you know what was interesting about working for, um, for the USSR, what, what it was like working for the communist regime? He said it was weird because I always knew Every single time I saw someone get a promotion, I found out later they were a believer. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, I guess they had some vocabulary and things to figure out how to share that they were Christians without risking getting in too much trouble. And he said, every time someone would get a promotion, I would go to them, and I would, over the course of conversation, find out that they were a Christian. He said, it never failed. I never saw a non-believer get promoted in the communist regime. I was like, Wait, how, how does that work? He said, because the only way that when we were in that Soviet stronghold, the only way you would ever want to work in such a way is to improve your government, to improve your culture, would be if you were working for the Lord and not for men. As I was thinking about the life of Daniel and I was thinking about that man and that calling just how, man, it was, it was so beautiful hearing him talk about that, like talk about what it meant to, to see kingdom realities be given permission to even like infiltrate Soviet Russia, you know? And I was like, oh, man, this is so cool. And, 
And I realized, as I was thinking about this and processing this, I, I do think I'd be amiss not to mention, guys, that the exact same reality is called to be true of you in the United States. And I don't mean like, well, that was Soviet Russia. No, no. Guys, it, one of the most important lessons we're going to learn from the life of Daniel is like, but America is not to you what Israel was to Daniel. The United States of America is to you what Babylon was to Daniel. And it would be, we would be theologically, we would be biblically amiss not to acknowledge that reality. That is nothing to say. I'm not saying anything against the United States. I love the United States of America, but I love it as a foreigner and not as a citizen. I do not see myself as someone who carries dual citizenship. It's not the biblical invitation. The biblical invitation is that you are a kingdom person. Now, because I'm geographically located here, I pray for this nation, oftentimes in a different way, more passionately than I pray for other nations. But truth be told, I've shed a lot more tears for the nation of India than I've ever shared for the United States of America just because the Lord's put a, given me a heart for it. And as we wrestle with what it means for some young men to infiltrate a society and a culture, I, I want to make sure that you realize where your identity lies. Now, if you're somebody who's in here and you recognize, man, I, I'm just kind of exploring Christianity, then I've got a glorious invitation for you, all right? And it's not just a, oh, it's not just like, oh, you can leave your citizenship behind. No, that's not the point. The point is that you get to become a, a member of the kingdom of God, a family of God. Like my identity is in my family of origin and my destination. There will be a day when my mailing address is heaven. But in the meantime, it doesn't mean that I'm not I, that I don't identify with that place while I'm passing through this one. And I think that's really, really important for us to make sure that we acknowledge and stare at. I put on here, what does holiness look like today? To be set apart and altogether other than aliens and strangers as citizens of heaven, owing our allegiance to our destination rather than our country of origin. I love Alistair Beggs, a um, pastor up in... Cleveland, in Cleveland, Ohio, and I love, I love Alistair Begg. Now, Alistair Begg is, um, I think, Scottish by descent, and so his accent does not sound like Cleveland, Ohio, if you go listen to him, but amazing expositor scripture, and when he was teaching on Daniel 1, he said this, he said, a dead fish flows with the current. It takes a live fish to swim against the stream. One thing that I've noticed that kind of makes this a little bit um, confusing oftentimes for me, as I live within, you know, as I, I live here in the United States, as I'm, a, you know, dwelling Lexington, Kentucky, and I have a heart for this city, this city in a way that I, I truly believe, guys, that we are living in a city that is going to get the privilege of having a front row seat, 
a front row seat to God doing something in us that we could never accomplish in ourselves. One thing that I've heard prayed for 20 years in this city is, God, don't do something so small that people would blame humans for it. Don't do something so small that people would blame gifts. Don't do something so small that people would be tempted to ever blame an organization for it. The very first prayer I ever prayed for Commonwealth City Church, when, uh, when we began to gather here five years ago, I heard the Lord say, Kurt, if your vision is so small, just your church can accomplish it, get a new vision. And that's been my heart ever since. And I know that's many of your hearts in this room. But one thing that I think we've been, that has made this feel a bit amiss is that I, as I was reading through, I just kept coming to this simple conclusion. It's at the bottom of one of my slides there, or the one before. If you'll go back to that one before, Jacob, real quick. And it's this, that lost people do lost people things, and redeemed people do redemptive things. So I was thinking through, like, what is this? You know, how do... How do four young men get moved into a culture that, I mean, the educational reality, guys, they were learning at school, they would have likely been learning incantations, okay? I told people, I was like, the more I studied it, I was like, basically, Daniel was the valedictorian of Hogwarts, okay? That's what's going on here, all right? He moves in. This isn't just like a school system that's like, oh, man, this is a... Oh, that teaching's slightly reprehensible. It's like, no, 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 no. The, no he's actually like, oh, like first class of the day, what is it? How to be a warlock. Then you go to algebra. All right, this is, I mean, this is rough. This is rough. And do you know what he did? He went to school every day. And he was never late. And he did better on all of his assignments than his buddies. And he helped all of them with their homework, even the warlock homework. And he became the valedictorian. And he was 10 times better than every other student around him. And you know why he did that? He did it for the glory of God. And I love, I love that there is, I know for me, like my, my upbringing was really, really beautifully unique. And I, even as I was thinking through how to interact with like what it means to be in the world, not of it. Lord gave me a great gift. I had, um, I think I was in public school for, like five and a half years or something like that, Christian school for a couple of years. I was homeschooled for a couple of years. I went to magnet school for a couple of years. And as I look back on my own experience, I'm kind of getting, I kind of got a little everything, you know? I got, I got it all. And as I look back and I saw that the Lord did this unique thing where he sent me to, he had my, my mother like pull me out of, out of school but in a way that I hated it. I hated homeschool, but I was, but it was good for me. Because she raised me up and discipled me at home with more intentionality so that she could send me to my public school with the expectation. And guys, this is the thing. Like Every day I remember, and it was mostly my senior year of high school, but I remember every day walking into East Jessamine High School right down there in Nicholasville, right next to big old cow field, all right? Moved from Jacksonville, Florida when I was 15 Thought it was the most redneck place on earth. That was before I discovered Wilmore or <laughs> Lancaster. No offense to those of you from this place. But I was like, man, there's no more place redneck than, um, than Nicholasville. And I got there, and I was like, this place is weird. But I remember God did a work in me, and he gave me this heart for my classmates. And I remember my senior high school specifically, I think the Lord did a unique work in my heart 
stirred me to live with the expectation that he would do something impossible in and through me as I walked through the hallways of my school. Watched a lot of other people get convinced of that same truth. All at the same time, we just began to encourage one another. And I remember, I remember going on my first international mission trip. I remember landing in a foreign nation. I remember getting off a flight, hearing people speak a language that I didn't know. And I remember thinking, oh, this is the same feeling I had every day when I walked into high school. That every day I went on a mission trip. Now here's the deal. Some of you, some of you are going to wake up and you're going to go on a mission trip to your friends and your classrooms. Some of you are going to get up every day and you're going to go on a mission trip to your workplace. Some of you are going to get up and you're going to go on a mission trip to the children that you're staying at home raising for those of you who are moms. But all of us, all of us wake up and we go on a mission trip in a foreign country, even if you wake up and stay in your own home because you are a citizen of heaven. And redeemed people do redemptive things. And a little aside, but lost people do lost people things. Romans actually makes it really clear they, that they have to. That, like I remember a lot, I feel like a lot of what I hear, especially as it's people interacting um, when it comes to political things or whatever it is, it can be, there's this, there's, it's almost like the church has been given permission to forget that when lost people do lost people things, they're bearing proper biblical fruit. And a lot of times it seems like Christians, we live with this expectation that lost people will do save people things. And guys, when lost people start doing save people things, the Bible starts being wrong. <laughs> and the Bible's not wrong. And the Word of God is truth. So when one thing that I noticed with Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, when they see Babylonians acting Babylonian, they say, oh, that's the way they should act. That's par for the course. That's who they should be. They're Babylonian. And I love it, even when I, th I think about the fact that, like, they actually did less most of the times that they got in trouble than anybody else. Like, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, you know, it's like, bow when the king comes. And they're like, no, we're just going to... We're just going to keep standing, you know? They just did less. They actually got in trouble for not doing anything. Everyone else bowed, and they're like, nah, I don't think we will. And they didn't do it like, stick their fist in their face. It was like, no. And even the way they approached the king afterwards, they're like, look, here's the deal. We realize you're probably going to throw us in a fire. And it might burn us, but it might not. Either way, we good. I love that. I like that invitation to kingdom people to live kingdom lifestyles in the midst of a perverted and depraved generation, which is what the Word of God promises us every generation will be, whether you're in Soviet Russia, 21st century America, or 1950s America. It's a perverted and depraved generation. It's every generation, every generation that doesn't submit to the Lordship of Jesus which will be every generation until we finally see heaven become our mailing address. So, to be set apart, to be aliens and strangers in a lost world. My final invitation to you is from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. As I, as I speak this over you, I'm just going to pray it um, at the end. The invitation for us, for us to not 
just see these four men who, who were set apart in the middle of a culture that was obviously the antithesis of the kingdom of God. But guys, it's, that's been every culture that's ever existed. Every culture that's ever existed. And it will be. Because Jesus called you to be in the world and not of it. He called you to be lights in a dark place. He did not call you to be lights in a lit up place. Thankfully, thankfully, the only lit up place is the place where he dwells forever and always. And in the meantime, you get to be lights in a dark world. And so as I invite us to explore and to ask the Father, like, what does holiness look like for me? I want to speak these words over you. 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12. He's talking about the end of all things and how there will be a day when everything doesn't just come to an end metaphorically, but literally everything will melt. The chair you're sitting on, gonna melt. Your favorite car, it'll melt. Whatever things you own that you think are awesome, they're gonna melt. And that's the best news ever. Because you know what happens at the end of melting? Heaven. And we're called to be a people that look forward to that day, that Desire to be with Christ. It's better by far, like Paul says in Philippians 1. And in light of that, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? Lord Jesus, as we finish up, this morning, like this time that we've gotten to spend in your word, I, Lord, I do. I, I really wonder, like, what Daniel would say to us today, and I trust it would be something far more profound and beautiful than anything I've said this morning. But I do, I do love this invitation to live lives of holiness and godliness. And Lord, I love the way that you define holiness that it's to be set apart, to be set apart, to be other than, to be different than. And it's a life of godliness that we are called to carry the family resemblance. Lord, to, to be godly, not to be like moral. And I'm sorry for the way that I often interpret that, to be that I think godliness is the equivalent of being well-behaved because it's not godliness to look around at my culture, my life, my world, the things that I steward and to ask, how would God live? Because that's how I want to live too. I thank you for the way that we see four men who did that in a culture that seems directly and vehemently opposed to everything that you are. But Lord, I thank you that that's been every Christian's calling since the world began. And so I pray, Father, even as we begin to, as we take communion, as we respond to this time of being invited to be set apart. Lord, I thank you that you were the ultimate example of holiness. And that you being set apart looked like a cross. You being set apart looked like not just looked like coming into a culture that was so much more different than Babylon could have been from Israel, that you left heaven and came to earth took sins that didn't belong to you, suffered the consequence of the sins that I committed. And even that thing I was wrestling with earlier this week, Lord, that you, the gospel, the story, when a homicide trial turns into an adoption hearing. I love that. So for those who are here who know you, may we respond. May we respond, Father, with a, with a yes and an amen.
to whatever it looks like to be completely other than our culture in this lost world. And Father, for those that don't know you that are in here, I ask you, Lord, I ask you, Father, call them up. Call them up into friendship with you. Call them into the, a change in identity that gets to depths of their heart that they didn't know anybody could ever have access to. Change us from the inside out. It's in your name. Amen. So we respond right now in praise. I do commission you. Stick out and act like God.